Hello, everyone. We have one Bible reading split into two tonight. So I'll be reading the first half, and you can find that on pages 12, 18 in your blue, blue Bibles. And it is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you, can, what you, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Again, sorry, anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on itself, on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbour? I now invite Maddie up, and I'll pray for her quickly. Father God, thank you for Maddie, and thank you that uh, she can share with us tonight. Uh, we just pray for the words that she is speaking through you, and that we may hear them and listen. Amen. Thanks, Maya, for a beautiful reading and prayer. I appreciate it. What a passage. Um, yeah, chapter four, this first few verses, and I think all of it, really dig quite deep um, and really get at the heart of a few issues. Um, so I want to dive straight in. I guess you've probably, a lot of you, heard of the idea before that each and every one of us was born with a God-shaped hole inside of us that only he can fill. When we become Christians, we be, we, sorry, when we accept Christ as Lord and Saviour, he fills it. Yet we continue to spend much of our lives not communing with God and trying to fill it with other things, things of the world, that don't and never will fill that void. In our frivolous attempts to fill the void, we put other things above God, money, love of others, success, pleasure, the list is pretty endless. And as we try to attain these worldly desires, we begin to turn on and sin against each other. This is exactly the situation that James was addressing amongst early Jewish Christians just outside of Palestine in chapter four. For context, these early Christians were likely poor and heavily persecuted. 
likely leading to a lack of trust in God's faithfulness, thus seeing them turn against each other, as James is calling out in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, which reads, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? I would argue that if you were not aware of whom this was written to, this letter could be written and speaking directly to the body of Christ today. How many of us have things in our lives that we find ourselves valuing above our relationship with God? Personally, I know I'm guilty as charged. In fact, even as I was preparing this message, I was so caught up in making it perfect, choosing to value success and the opinion of others above God. The reason I'm here to speak is the truth. Sorry, the reason I'm here is to speak the truth of the word and glorify God in the process. But I completely forgot for a time that point. My idolatry had all sorts of fallouts. I struggled to let myself have any joy in doing anything else in the last few weeks, including spending time with God. I would be serving someone in our community and complaining about it to myself the whole time because it was taking away from my time to make this message worthy of your ears. And I can almost guarantee that when I was stuck in that pattern of thinking, I was short with someone I love or missed opportunities to love other people like Christ. I may have not had any straight up fights or quarrels as James is talking about, but I was walking with the same heart that leads to these things. And I've seen the same wrong motive of mine lead to disagreements with others in the past. Pretty ironic, hey? And I'm sure I'm not alone. Take a minute to search yourself, church, and ask God, are there any ways in which I am in friendship with the world? Is there anything that I'm valuing above my relationship with God? And what is the impact of me chasing after that thing or those things? Unfortunately, the world we live in today harbors the perfect conditions for fueling idolatry. We live in an era where we're told to live our truth and broadcast it to the world. Media, and particularly social media, are rampant with people flaunting their wealth, status, perfect marriages, bodies, aesthetics, adventures, you name it. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of these things. What a blessing for the lives of those people who have them. But when we see that, we covet what they have. We stop being grateful for the gifts that God has given us. And we begin to spend all our energy thinking about how we can get that lifestyle. If this is our focus, how can we expect to function as a healthy body of Christ, free from division? We cannot function as the body if we're not all focused on the same goal. My favourite history teacher used to say that if we don't learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. In our case, we have a wealth of history in our Bibles to learn from. In Numbers, after God had shown the people of Israel the promised land, the people were afraid of its current inhabitants, who were much larger in size and number than they were. 
They did not trust that God would make a way for them to reach his promise and were overwhelmed at the thought of taking the land by force, which led to Numbers 14, verses 2 to 3, if you want to read along. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? I want to repeat that line for a second. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? The Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were slaves. And God was promising them a land of abundance. If God is promising us abundance, freedom from sin, eternal life and relationship with him in here and now, why do we continuously choose to go back to enslaving our minds to idols that will never fulfill us? Maybe, just like the Israelites, we're failing to trust that God is a good father who wants good things for his children, his people. Maybe we're failing to trust that he will come through on those promises. But if you know anything about the Israelites, you will know that God always keeps his promises. However, fear and doubting God kept the Israelites waiting for another 40 years before the point, beyond the point where they saw the promised land for the first time before they could enter it. And this doesn't have to be our story, friends. James brings the good news in verse 6 where he says, But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. When we humble ourselves before God, he has grace for us. Why the humble? According to Matthew Henry, because they, it's because they need, see their need for it, will pray for it, and be thankful for it, and such shall have it. This sin is what Christ paid for on the cross some 2,000 years ago. And if we humble ourselves, repent, and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, we are saved. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you believe in him, you are indeed saved. James doesn't just stop there, though. He carries on in verses 7 to 10 with some practical solutions to help us and the early Jewish Christians to combat idolatry. It reads, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. N.T. Wright says in his commentary on James that God is ready and waiting. He longs to establish a friendship with you. Friendship deeper, stronger, and more satisfying than you can ever imagine. That's pretty incredible. If we recognize this and submit ourselves to God, we are open to the process of sanctification and he can move through us. Resisting the devil, when you say it like that, sounds like a simple enough thing to do. But using our own willpower and strength can make it hard to resist temptation. Eventually, we'll run out of strength. Thus, I think the order in which James has written verse 7 is really important. He says, first submit to God and then resist the devil. 
If we have submitted to God, then that resistance to temptation comes from his strength, not our own. The devil will flee from you when you resist him in the name of Jesus Christ, by the strength of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you and moves through you. And how do we ensure we're regularly submitting to God? Well, James goes into that in verse 8. He says, Come near to God, and we will come near, and he will come near to you. James is calling us to commune with God regularly, continuously, and to continuously repent of our sin. We purify our hearts by accepting the saving grace of Christ and continuously forming and renewing our relationship with him. By doing this, we can grow in the fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul also addresses this in his letter to the Galatians. In Galatians 5, verses 22 to 26, it reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. I just want to highlight verse 24 again. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Just as James points out in chapter 4, submitting ourselves to Christ as our Lord and Saviour is the way to crucify our desires. When we do this, we also welcome the Spirit into our lives and begin to walk through the process of sanctification. In walking through this process with the Spirit, we grow in the fruit of the Spirit, which again are as follows, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When these fruits are evident in our lives, the way we relate to those around us, the rest of the body of Christ changes, preventing us from engaging in the fights and quarrels that James mentions in verse 1. This is great news for someone like myself who has a tendency to idolise success, among other things. Because I'm walking through the process of sanctification... When my perfectionism began to impact my ability to glorify God and the way I was treating my brothers and sisters in Christ, God convicted me in my time communing with him and prompted me to redirect my focus back to him. However, this is not the end of my journey and James affirms that in his address. He ends this part of his letter with a warning to us all. In verse 11 and 12 he says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? As we undergo the process of sanctification, we must not let our old ways sneak back in, in a new form. We must not let pride come into our lives and lead us to judge other members of the body as they walk through the exact process that we've been through before and continuing. Otherwise, we'll end up right back where we started, fighting and quarrelling, only this time living under the illusion that we're somehow on God's side. For example, if I'm hurt by someone struggling with desires to impress others, and letting that guide their life choices. And I do not extend that love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness and self-control in response to what they've done, then I've learnt nothing. As I don't recognise the grace and mercy that Christ extended to me when he sacrificed himself on the cross for my sin. Only God is holy and pure enough to be the judge of our actions and he paid it all for anyone that will accept him. As we heed James's warning, I leave you with a final thought. Will you continue to be in friendship with the world or will you joyfully accept the sacrifice that God made for us and let him fill the space inside of us that is made just for him? Amen. Earlier. Uh, let's continue to read James 4, now 13 to 17. Yes. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that, as it is. You boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Let's have Rob up now. God, thank you for Rob and thank you for your words that you are speaking through him. Uh, Bless him and open our ears to listen. Thanks. I feel like that speaks for itself. (laughs) Um, And Maddie certainly did. And um, really appreciate that, Maddie. And like, I want that sanctification. (laughs) It's really exciting. Um, Yeah, so tonight, as soon as I get my notes up. Yeah, tonight, I want us all to hear James' strong rebuke. It's really what this section is. So, for the readers, which today are us, we've been called a puff of smoke, arrogant and evil boasters, and been asked, what is your life? Like, where does that place us? Like, why? And how does this ancient text bear on us today? So as I'm going through this just for data, could you stick up the verses when I read them out? I won't do it just yet. Um, So last week, Lauren spoke about questioning the way we speak, about actually thinking about the assumptions we make when we decide to speak, the way that we banter, the way that we road rage. And she used this great quote out of the message from Romans 12, verse 1, which... Eugene Peterson adjust, translates as not becoming so well adjusted to the culture that we fit into it without thinking. And so this week, after we've examined our motives and our fighting and quarrelling and our internal sanctification and change by God, James asks us to consider our way of life. To think, not just fit into the way that our country and the way that our culture does it without thinking. So the first thing he says, he says, now listen, you who say 
today or tomorrow. We will go to this or that city, spend a year there. Like, who are these people he refers to? So, in his time, there was a prevalent class of Jewish merchants, middle-class merchants, and one commentator says that they were common in the culture of James Day, and undoubtedly, some of them were Christian Jews. So these people were of substantial means, clearly, because they could uproot their life in one city at home and, you know, safely speculate on a new place of business without risking financial life and limb. They were entrepreneurs, you know, disruptors even, you know. These people got out there and they, they made it happen. They were hustlers. So I'd predict that 80% of us in this room are kind of in the same position as these merchants. I'm not looking at a room full of business people. <laughs> Some of you. But we have financial security. We might have well-off parents. We might even have Centrelink. <laughs> Which, even if you think about it, that's more than enough to live on and more especially compared to the rest of the world who don't, you know, I was looking up today, Australia's, oh, at least one point, was the richest, the wealthiest country in the world, like per head. And we have a lot of money. <laughs> and I guess like the way we feel about it probably most of the time for most people in this room is that we're all right. Like we're secure enough to move to Melbourne without risk, you know, go to the shops and buy what we like, study what we like, do what we like. So here James responds to our presumptuousness. He says, why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Vapor rises and then it dissipates. It assimilates with the air. You don't see it anymore. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the wise but cynical teacher uses the Hebrew word for vapor to start his address. He says, hevel, hevel, he cries. It means meaningless, futile. He writes about working hard to gain property, servants, pleasure, all to survey it near the end of his life and declare it meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So I think for us, it may seem a noble pursuit, you know, to work full-time, save up for a house deposit, around 20 grand, put it down, you know, have our nice little quarter-acre block, the house with the hills hoist, and we know that's crap, it's a flat another morning. Like, not a chance. But I think there's a life script that we've been sold, somehow, through our upbringing and, you know, the modern era where, you know, we need to have, we need to have a place, you know? Or, you know, we need to work full-time, and that makes sense. It's secure, and it's good. It's not a bad thing. But I think these cultural assumptions, the way that we manage our finances, the way that we decide to do them, need to be thought about and need to be questioned. Like, why, you know, why bide our time? Like, our time's short. Like, we don't have long here. We're vapor. We disappear. And I think God's got a lot for us, and it can be really easy just to fall into the assumed life scripts of our culture without taking them to God and saying, is this the one for me, or should I be doing it a different way? So the next verse says, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. 
So James wants us to consider not our financial position, homemating status, work status, Centrelink, whatever, as good or bad. I'm not trying to say either of them are bad, but he's trying to address our presumption about these things. Do we presume we will have them? Have we ever considered any alternatives? As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Evil. <laughs> like, that's full on. That's a big rebuke. These arrogant schemes are defined by one commentator as an impious and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things, like our financial all-rightness, trust in the Australian dream schema, you know, all of these nice, good things. Again, there's nothing wrong with our security. There's nothing wrong with owning a home. But does our security in these things keep us from securing ourselves in God? Is it easy enough to toddle along in full-time work, make money where and when we please, that we don't have to ask God for help? Ask for his will? Place ourselves at his feet? Like, I was challenged by Bree Monaghan a couple of weeks ago. We were, um, we were having dinner at Workaholic after church. And she was saying to us, she lives in, for you, those who don't know, she lives in Uganda. Um, she's a cross-cultural worker in Uganda. And it's a completely different context. <laughs> and she doesn't have much. And the other people there have even less. Um, and she was saying to us at her table, like, I have so much respect for you guys. You live in the West. Like, you have so much, and yet you have to submit to God. And it's really, you have to challenge yourself to do that. I was like, do I? <laughs> to hear that from someone who every week, every day has to wake up and say, I need my daily bread from God. If I don't get it, I might die. <laughs> or I might not be able to stay here. I might have to move back home permanently. To hear that from someone whose reality is that, that is day in, day out was so hard to hear, so challenging. And like, how to respond to that? And I think as Maddie said tonight, and as it says really well in that middle section of James about coming near to God and he'll come near to you, the only way, I have one thing to say about submission, and there's one tip, and that's, you have to use these. Like, like you have to get down here. You probably can't see me now. And it's embarrassing because I have short quads tendons and I can't sit on my heels. But that's what I'm trying to say. It's humbling to be down here. It's humbling to be submitting ourselves to God. And it's humbling to do this, have open hands. So often in life we do this. We try to grab stuff. We try to say, and what I'm trying to say tonight, we presume, we grab and we're like, you know, I will have a house someday. We don't begin to realize, like, wow, maybe I need to open this. And I think the scary thing for a lot of us, and I know that this is true, has been true for me throughout my life, is that we do not know what to do. We're like, but that stuff works. Those life scripts work. They're secure. They make sense. <laughs> but, you know, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. If we come down onto our knees, we use our knees and we say to God, like, I don't have what it takes to submit to you. I don't know how to submit to you. I don't know what to do. He will give us a step-by-step -step way through sanctification to get us there and to take us past the way that we've been formed by the culture, formed by our parents, formed by our friends, formed by our minds, 
formed by all of these things that aren't Jesus, and he'll take us on that journey so that we can offer things one by one to him. And it's, it's overwhelming. I had a moment last year where I realized, oh, at a small group, we were talking about money, and I realized, oh, what? I thank God for all of this stuff. I've never thanked God for a paycheck once in my life. It's not my money, <laughs> except I feel like it is. Our lives are a gift. Every morning is a gift. We've been bought at a price by Jesus on the cross. He decided to live inside of us. He made us holy so that his spirit can live in here. We are temples. And yet we think, oh, yeah, I made that money. I can do with it what I like. Cool. <laughs> like, I would invite you guys to get on your knees and see where it takes you. Because there's so much more for us when we submit to God. So it says at the end of the chapter, it says, if there is good, if one of you knows the good you ought to do and does not do it, it's sin for them. And I challenge you tonight that if there's good that you know you need to go and do, just do it. <laughs> Walk out that door and do something about it. Talk to someone about it after the service so that you're held accountable from either Matty or I's sermon or something else God's been saying to you tonight. Just make a practical step forward. I have one verse to leave you with, which Maddie referred to, and it's really cool when she did. Um, it's cool working with the same spirit. <laughs> um, it says in Luke chapter 18, it says, if you, even though you are evil, know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask. Thanks, guys.